You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Man, I want to extend a special welcome to the visitors that we have with us. I see we have quite a few visitors with us. We're very glad that you chose to come here and worship with us. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I go by aunt. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Midtown Notch, and I'm very grateful that you chose to come and worship with us this morning. I'd love to start us off with a, a few questions today to, to ponder, to think through. Have you ever seen someone, I want to talk to the believers today, have you ever seen someone that as far as you could tell is a very faithful, is a very faithful Christian follower of Jesus and end up acting out of character? They are, they are, as far as we know, seem to be so strong and faithful as a follower of Jesus in some areas and in some areas make you go, man, I can't believe that. There have been many pastors, many preachers that ended up disqualifying themselves from the ministry seemingly out of nowhere. How does this happen? How does this come, come about? I want you to go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to continue in our sermon series, The Life of David, today. And we're going to look into David's life, specifically one of his lowest points. The points where he, and you have to remember and understand about David, he was the one that was called a man after God's own heart. He, he, early in his life, we know he worked faithfully in his father's field. We know after that, his, his fame, his claim to fame came when he defeated Goliath, who was, who was his, who the people of God, excuse me, their biggest enemy at the time, threatening spiritual and physical oppression towards God's people. God uses him in an incredible way to defeat Goliath. He becomes king. God uses him over and over again to defeat Israel's enemies that threaten them with this, with this physical oppression and this spiritual oppression. David is, is this celebrity. He's a hero. He's the king of the people of God, again, described as a man after God's own heart. And because of his faithfulness to God, God actually promised him that one of his descendants would be on the throne forever, that his his legacy and his lineage would be a son who reigns forever as king over the people of God. We know from the New Testament that that is referring to, that's a promise made about Jesus, as Jesus is, as is seen in the New Testament over and over again, a descendant of David. Long story short, when it comes to people God was using at that time to lead his people to worship him and that God was using to accomplish his purposes, David was at the top of the list. I can't imagine anyone at that time being more highly esteemed for the way they follow God and led the people of God to follow God as well as protecting the people of God. And then things make a catastrophic turn very quickly for David. Scandal arises. David falls in a number of different ways, and we're going to see how it's like he's stacking sin on top of of other sins. He begins to spiral out of control in an extremely destructive pattern, destructive for him, destructive for those around him as well. We're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. reads, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, 
David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was where David's palace was. It's where David lived. The beginning of this verse tells us that this is a time when kings were out to battle and David was a king. He should have been out fighting with his people. They're at war with at least two groups at this time. If you're reading this and you're living in this time, this will be very strange. Why isn't David there? At this point, again, he's back home at his palace and things begin to go horribly for him. But I, I, and we're going to get into how things go horribly. But before we do that, I want to make sure we don't miss what's going on in verse one, because everything after verse one comes as a result of verse one. He was supposed to be fighting. He was supposed to be defending the people of God, but instead he was at home. He was living as if he did not have the responsibility to continue to fight for the people of God in the way that God had called him to. He was forsaking his responsibility. I can only imagine what his thoughts might have been at that time. Yeah, I know this isn't what God has for me to do. I know this isn't how I should be acting or living or responding I know I'm supposed to be leading and sacrificing for the kingdom of God, but instead, I'm just going to do what I want to do for once. I mean, look, I mean, and if you, if you notice what it says in verse 1, they're winning the battle. They're besieging their enemies. They have the upper hand. I can only imagine David saying, hey, look, we're winning. Everything's okay. I got people out there who are leading in the battle. I'm just going to stay home and rest. I need some me time. I deserve a break. I can take a break from fighting. From there, we see this sin snowball and wreak havoc in his life and in the life of others. But before we go into that, I want, I want to say David is living like it's not wartime, and that ends up being his downfall, the sobering reality for us as far as of Jesus is it's always wartime. It's always wartime with us. From the time you became a believer, every day, every moment of your life, you've been in a war. There is a real enemy who wants to destroy you, who wants to enslave you. I want to ask you, are you living with your guard down? Are you living as if you do not bear the responsibility to continue to fight for your own personal holiness, your own personal growth in the Lord, to fight against everything in this world that prevents it from looking more and more like heaven every day? Are you living as if it's not wartime? Is your guard down? If so, you are susceptible just like David is, as we will see. Because even though we've been given ultimate victory in Jesus, we will practically live like we're defeated if we live like it's not wartime. If we live like we have not been empowered to fight. Let's look at the fallout in David's life and the spiral into sin that we will see. But before we get into it, I got one thing that I got to tell you. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. It will cost you more than you want to pay. So kill your sin or it will be killing you. So kill your sin or it will be killing you. Let's move on. Verse two. It says, it happened one, late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. You have to understand a little bit about the way they did buildings and things like that back then. David was living in the palace. It was the tallest building and home in all of Jerusalem. 
in general, the houses were not very big. The construction was not as complex as it often is today. And on top of that, they often didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have plumbing inside of the home. People would frequently bathe on the roof. This was a common thing. This woman was not doing anything wrong or out of the ordinary. It was that David, because he lives in the palace and sits high above everyone else so that he can look out over his kingdom, was able to see her in what should have been a private moment. She wasn't doing anything to tempt him. Let's continue on verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. I want to be very clear about something, and we're not, I don't have time to, come, to fully get into it today, as I, we will get into it more in another sermon in this series. David summons her to his palace. He is the king. If you are summoned by the king and you do not go, you risk death. I want us to be very clear about what David is doing at this point. He sees her. He lusts after her. He desires her. He asks about her. Then he sends his people to come and get her and bring her to him. I believe a faithful way to describe this is she was not able to consent. Not responding to the summoning of the king was worthy of the death penalty in that time. And now... She gets pregnant. This is a gross abuse of power on David's part. And she was not able to consent to laying with him. Some have made different arguments about maybe she wanted to. Whether she wanted to or not, she was not able to consent to this. So I want to make sure we're keeping up with what David has done so far. He's already sinned in multiple ways. He forsakes his responsibility to fight. He lusts after Bathsheba. He summons her to come and sleep with him. Now, I doubt that this was David's plan when he decided he wasn't going to be out to war, but I believe oftentimes we are susceptible to doing more than we thought we would be willing to do or able to do when we let our guard down and stop fighting. I got to tell you something about sin. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. So it will kill your sin, or it will be killing you, or it will be killing you. Continue on verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Now remember, Uriah is the husband of Bathsheba, who he's just slept with, who he now has heard is pregnant. We'll continue on. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Joab is one of the generals or captains in the army under David. Verse 7, when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go, to, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the 
servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. At this time, it would have been wrong or, or illegal or seen as immoral for a man who is at war who, to, to sleep and lay with his wife at that time. That is what you did after the war was over with. Joab said, David, on your life, I would not do that while my men are out here fighting. The Ark of the Covenant is out out there with them, I'm not going back home. David says, hey, you've been going for a while. Well, first he comes in, it's real, extremely smooth at first. Hey, how's the war going? Hey, how's Joab doing? Are things going okay? Okay, cool. Well, go, well, since you made a long journey here, go ahead and go home, spend some time with your wife. I'm sure she would love to see you. And he says, on your life, I will not do this thing. So at this point, David, again, forsakes his responsibility to fight, lusts after Bathsheba, summons her to sleep with him, summons Uriah from war to get him to go and sleep with his wife. I got to tell you something about sin. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. So kill your sin, or it will be killing you. David is scrambling at this point. You ever seen someone in one of these situations before? They're in danger of being caught. They're in danger of being finding out. So now they're trying to run and do anything that they can so they won't be found out. He's spiraling. He's, he's scrambling, trying to figure out what he can do. Many people think about sin in terms of what they do that's wrong. And that's an appropriate way to think about sin. We can do wrong things and thus sin by our actions. But sin is way more than that. Sin seeks to destroy us. It seeks to capture us. David went from the man after God's own heart to now conniving to how he can cover up the wrong that he's done with more wrongs. Sin is a menace to us that is always after us, always seeking to destroy us. I want us to pay attention to how God talks about sin to Cain. This is right before Cain kills Abel. So it's the second generation after Adam and Eve, or the generation after Adam and Eve. God says this to Cain right before he goes to kill Abel. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. It reads, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, look at this. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, different translations translate this a few different ways. Some say you must subdue it. Some say you must master it. Some say you must reign over it. This verse is showing that before, before Cain goes to kill his brother, God tells him, hey, sin is lurking. It's scheming. It's plotting. It has a plan for you, and it desires to master you. It desires to own you. He's warning Cain, watch out. Sin is lurking around, so you better reign over it or it will reign over you. You need to subdue it or it will subdue you. See, we often have this desire to play with sin, but sin don't come to play games. Sin doesn't come to play games. It comes to take over. It comes to own you, to subdue you, to reign over you. Sin is trying to destroy you. We, oft, we often have sins that have become very dear to us. We've justified our sins and made peace with them. And the word of God today is showing us that sin isn't something to make peace with. Sin is what we are to always be at war with. And David's problem is he's not at war when he should be at war. Even the sin that we don't think is a big deal is seeking to master us. 
Even the sin that we think we're keeping hidden, we think we're keeping to ourselves, it is after us to master and subdue us. And as we continue on, we'll read verse 12. It gets worse for David from here. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. David made Uriah drunk, and in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. David invites Uriah for a dinner party. He gets Uriah drunk, but Uriah still doesn't go down to his own house. As a picture of what sin is doing to David at this time, Uriah, when he is drunk, is more righteous than David when he's sober. This is where sin has taken the man who's after God's own heart. This is where sin has taken the one that God has been using for years at this point to lead his people into righteousness. But he let his guard down, but he stopped fighting when he should have been fighting. And now he's ended up in this place that I'm sure he didn't expect himself to be. And I need you to listen to me, family, because this is extremely important that sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will always cost you more than you want to pay. So I'm going to change the way I say it at the end. So reign over your sin or it will reign over you. Subdue and take control over and master your sin or it will master you. Let's keep going. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by hand, by the hand, sent it by the hand of Uriah. So he sends a letter to Joab and he has Uriah bring the letter to Joab, who's his captain in the army. Verse 15. In the letter he wrote, listen, this is the letter he had Uriah carry to Joab on the battlefield. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. David sends this general a letter saying the man who's carrying this Send him to the part where the, where the fighting is the harshest, where it's the most fierce, and then have everyone pull away from him so that he dies. David is completely off the rails at this point. At this point, he's conspiring to murder and trying to involve one of his captains in this murder as he's attempting to cover up his own sins. He's a leader. He's a king, but he's abusing his authority. He can't be trusted to make any type of good decisions at this point because this sin has so infiltrated his heart and his actions that he can no longer be trusted. Verse 16. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. So in this intense place of fighting, some of the people that are serving in the army under David, they fell. They died. Says Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. Let's review. He forsook his responsibility as a fighter. He lusted after Bathsheba. He summons her to sleep with him. He summons Uriah from the war to get him to sleep with Bathsheba, which doesn't work. And then he, effect, he effectively conspires to kill Uriah. I got to tell you something about sin. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. It will cost you more than you want to pay. So dominate and rule over your sin or your sin will dominate and rule over you. Let's jump down to the end of this just horrific chapter in the Bible. Verse 26. 
When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We'll get more into the abuses of power that we see here in David and others in, a, in another sermon in this series. For now, I want to point out, I think one of the scariest things about this story, in my opinion, is that David was such a man of God. That before all this, he was, he was such a man of God. It's hard to find anything in the narrative about him before this where he did anything wrong. And then he lets his guard down. And then for whatever reason, he stops fighting the way that he's supposed to be fighting. And now this sin is wreaking havoc in his life. is causing so much pain and abuse and harm and death in the lives of others. This is scary to me. It's scary. It alerts me. It makes me want to be more careful. What sins have I made peace treaties with when I should be at war? What do we do when we see someone who was legitimately a man or woman of God do something so despicable? I'll tell you what we do. I'll tell you what we better do. We learn from it. We learn that sin enslaves that it enslaves us. Jesus says as much in John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, Jesus said. As I've said before, either we are mastering our sin or our sin is mastering us. And here's the problem. We often think that we're using sin to get what we really want. When Satan is using sin to enslave us, We actually think we're getting the thing that will give us life, that will give us peace, that will give us joy, that will make everything okay. And the whole time Satan is using it to enslave us, to put us in bondage. So either you are putting your sin in bondage or your sin is putting you in bondage. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we either kill our sin or it is killing us. At first, sin often promises to bring relief, to actually bring freedom, when it actually always brings slavery. Sin will lie to you and tell you, oh, it's just this one time. You can stop doing it after this time, right? It's just a little bit of this won't hurt. It'll actually make you feel better. Or you've been under so much pressure. Honestly, you deserve this. You deserve to be able to experience this, to be able to enjoy This You actually find so much relief if you just give in and stop fighting against this. Sin's game plan is to allure us into embracing it or tasting it, and then it traps us and enslaves us. This is the way that it it works. Sin is like a fisherman, right? It dangles in front of us something that we desire, something that seems appealing to us, but there's always a hook in the bait. There's always a hook, and you're always caught when you take the bait. Sin is not here to play with us. It wants to capture us, and it uses allure. It tempts us with something that we desire, something we want. When our church first got started, well, I should say when we first started having our, our weekly Sunday services, I remember at first feeling so much joy because I felt like I was doing what I had been called to do. Uh, I first felt called to become a pastor when I was about 15 years old. I remember telling my dad, who's also a pastor, that I felt called to be a pastor. And I could tell he didn't really want to fully affirm it, but he wanted to let me know he thought I was on the right track. So as soon as I told him, he was like, hmm, 
okay. And that was it. That was literally all he said about it until I came to him and told him I was going to be ordained at some point in the future as a pastor. So this is something that I had desired for a long time. And after about six months in that first year, I remember being so drained, so depleted, so worn out. I remember coming up to preach and feeling like I have nothing to give. I remember going to, pre- and, and even before that happened, I remember going to different churches and seeing pastors that were able to stand up over and over again and proclaim the word of God. And I remember thinking how much of a blessing it was to actually have the privilege of being able to do that week in and week out, Sunday in and Sunday out. And here I am six months in praying to God as I'm stepping down from the pulpit. God, I don't know if I can continue to do this. And I remember doing some soul searching and asking myself, why am I feeling so much anxiety about this? Why am I so tired and feeling so burnt out about this? And and the Lord, through a variety of things, began to reveal to me that I was not trusting him enough. And I was trusting in myself to build the church and to grow the church. And one of the ways that that was manifesting itself was at that time, that same year that our church got started was the year uh, my boys were born, my twin boys. So they were extremely young. So that's a, a lot to carry. And at the same time, I was bivocational as well. I was, I was working part-time here with the church and also part-time uh, with another job. And I never gave myself any time to rest and to Sabbath, which to me at the time didn't seem like a big deal. I'm working for the kingdom of God. God, I'm here to serve you. This is not that big of a deal that I'm not taking any time to rest. And God began to reveal to me over and over again that actually the reason I wasn't resting was because I didn't trust him. I didn't trust him to build his church. I felt like I had to do it. So anytime something I felt like the church would benefit if this thing was done, I just went and did it instead of resting, even though I knew that God was calling me to both work and Rest And so this sin that seemed small to me, I began to experience bondage from it. And now the thing that I had literally been dreaming about for years, I was praying to God saying, God, I don't think I can continue to do this. Because sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and it will cost you more than you want to pay. I would have never thought that from not trusting, a God, trusting in God enough to rest that I would be not even desiring to continue to do the thing that I had felt called to do for over 10 years. But that's what sin will do to us. It enslaves. Sin is, is sneaky. It seems like a good thing. And then it enslaves us. And many of us, many of us in this room have felt this slavery before, Right? Maybe you sinned against the Lord and then you had to put more sin on top of that sin to cover it up. Or maybe your, your sin just led to other forms of sin. Some of us in this room are bitter and resentful towards others in the church. And it started with the fact that you didn't go to that brother or sister and make it right when they sinned against you. And now there's division in the body of Christ. And now you don't want anything to do with them. You're not even trying to pursue oneness and unity as the Bible calls us to. And now you don't want anything to do with them. And it started with you just let your guard down when you knew you should have gone to them and made it right. And now there's bondage. Now the body of Christ is highly affected and harmed by this. Maybe you said, well, it's not that big of a deal, right? It's not that big of a deal. It's okay. I'll still be cordial. I'll still wave at them, but I'm not going to pursue unity and peace with them, actual peace with them. And now the resentment and bitterness that you feel is a result of the slavery and the bondage because you embrace sin instead of fighting against it. 
it's important that we look at how Paul talks about Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. He says, and no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan does not come as a monster. He does not come at, as something that, that oftentimes will make you look at it and say, oh, that's the thing that I, that I don't want to do. That's not his, that's not his, that's not how he does. He comes to Adam and Eve in the garden with something that they would want to eat, something that was a delight to the eyes, the Bible says. He goes to Jesus when he's fasting in the wilderness and just offers him some bread or tells him to turn these stones into bread. He, he comes with a lure. He comes tempting us with something that we would desire. And I'm sure we've experienced the same thing that Eve experienced. I'm sure that fruit looked real sweet in the beginning, but it got real bitter after she experienced the slavery and the bondage that came as a result. I'm sure many of us have felt the same. I know I have. Some of us, even now, you're thinking of things. Maybe you're on the fence about it. Maybe you've already chosen that you're going to walk in this act of sin. But you have in your mind right now, you're weighing, what am I going to do? What am I going to choose? Am I going to follow this sinful desire that I have? This thing that I'm thinking that's actually sinful that will satisfy me? Some of you, you have sin fantasies right now. I wish that person would come and say something to me. You already plan what you're going to say, what they're going to say in response, and then you already plan how you're going to respond to their response. You have fantasized about your sinful response because sin allures us, it tempts us, it dangles on in front of us something we believe that we want, and then it always hooks us when we take the bait. And that is our question today. Will we take the bait? Satan has described himself as an, or disguised himself as an angel of light and deceived us into thinking that the thing that he is going to use to enslave us will actually set us free will actually bring us relief. Here's the question for us. What is it in your life that you're believing will be real good and sweet that Satan wants to use to enslave you? What is it? How does he come at you? What is it that you know you desire that's not of God that he would love to use to to cause you to sin and be enslaved to him? Is there anything in your life that you know is against God, but maybe you've, you've justified it, and you've justified it because you feel like it's not even worth fighting against anymore, because what's the point? Because you've experienced that bondage. Because you've experienced that, that slavery, that, you've, yeah, that power that you've given over to sin, and so now, because you don't feel like you can actually defeat it, because now, because you don't feel like you can actually get out of its clutches, you've just made peace with it instead of continuing to fight it, because you feel like, what's the use? Why continue to fight it? I've tried fighting this thing for years, and it continues to be a part of me. It continues to cause me so much pain and so much difficulty, and I've given into it so many times. At this point, I might as well just justify it and act like it's okay and learn to live with it because I don't feel like I can actually be free from it. Where has sin taken you farther than you want to go and kept you longer than you wanted to stay and cost you more than you wanted to pay? Where do you feel like sin is reigning over you and you are not reigning over it? Is there sin in your life that's grown into something that currently just feels like it's too much? 
It feels like it's not worth fighting anymore because you feel like you're not able to beat it. What do you feel enslaved to? I ask you to think of that because I have good news for us today. We're going to go to Romans chapter 6. The context of this passage is Jesus is encouraging his people not to give in to sin, specifically to not continue on in sin just because they know that God will forgive them. I love the way he encourages and empowers the people of God in verse 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. He's saying that when Christ was crucified, our old self was crucified with it. He's saying that in our union with Christ, when Christ died on that cross, it was like our old self was also nailed to that cross. And he died, and when he died, our sin died with him. Paul is proclaiming to us that if you are a Christian, he needs you to know your old self has died. The flesh, the, the part that has been enslaved to sin, he's saying, no, 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 that died when Christ died. He's saying the power that that has had over you is already dead. If you're a Christian, then, then slave to sin is no longer part of your story. It's not part of your identity. That is, part of, that is a part of you that has already died. Let's keep going. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. He's saying, but Christ didn't just die. He is alive, which means not only did our old self die with him, but we can now have new life in him. He's going to continue on that point in verse 9. He says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. He's saying, if you're a believer, I want to rehash a little bit. Christ got on the cross at Calvary and carried our sin with him. Second Corinthians says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. And oftentimes when we think about that verse and what he did on the cross, I think we only consider the fact that he died for the guilt of our sin. That he died to take away the guilt and shame that sin has over us. That's not the only thing he did when he took our sin upon himself and died. He also crushed the power that sin has over us because when he died, he left the power of sin in the grave and he got back up and is now alive to God. So your sinful nature, your flesh, the part of you that is enslaved to sin can no longer control and empower you because we have victory because he carried your sin on his back when he went to the cross. But that is not how the story ends because as some of y'all have heard before, because early Sunday morning, early Sunday morning, he got up out of the grave. He now lives the sin, the sinful nature or our old tendencies, our old self and way of living. He left in the grave, but he is alive. And Paul is telling us that just like he now has new life, we too now have new life and sin no longer masters us. It no longer has control over us. Verse 10 says the death he died to sin, he did it once and for all, which means if we're in him, our sin has been defeated once and for all, which means now the only power sin has over us is the power we give it. The only power that sin has over us is what we offer over to it, and that is what allows, that's what keeps us from actually experiencing the victory in Christ that we have already been given. So you might ask the question, well, how do we walk in this victory now over sin? He starts on that in verse 11. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. He says, so now you got to change the way you think. Not only the way that you think, but you got to change the way you think about yourself now. You have to see yourself differently now. That when you are tempted to sin, you need to remember, no, 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 I'm dead to that. 
No, no, that old me has already died. I am dead to sin now, and I am alive to God. He said, because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, I am now dead to sin. So, so when you see, just like he said in Genesis chapter 4, that sin is crouching at your door, the response of the Christian is, no, 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 I'm dead to that. No, 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 no. My, my old self has already been crucified. I have been made new in him. Because when he put our sin on his back, he carried sin farther than sin wanted to go. He kept sin longer than he wanted to stay, and he caused sin more than sin wanted to pay because we know the end of the story is that sin and death and Satan all get thrown into the lake of fire, and the people of God go on to be with him forever. So Christians, we fight. We continue to fight, but we fight from a place of victory. So that means even if you take a full, a few losses, if, if you lose a few things here, you know you only lost that play. You didn't lose the whole game. You haven't lost the whole game. You're going to win the game. So go ahead and fight now with everything that you have and never, ever, ever give in to hopelessness because you feel enslaved to sin because you know your Savior has defeated sin when he died on the cross and got up from the grave. I got a little bit more for you in verse 12. Just a little bit more in verse 12. It says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your, your members. He's talking members is another way of saying your body or different parts of your body. Do not, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That the old us have died. The old us has died. And we've been raised to newness of life in him. Present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. He's saying because you have received the kindness of God, the grace of God that you have not earned. Not only has he taken the guilt of sin away from us, but he's taken the power of sin away from us. That we are not able actually to be slaves to righteousness, as the Bible calls it. That sin no longer reigns over us, but we have a new master now. That sin was our master, but we have a new master now who died and took our sin upon himself and rose up out of the grave, which means we now have the ability. And I'm not saying we're going to be perfect in this life. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that the Holy Spirit in you is powerful enough to continue to give you victory after victory after victory over sin that you may feel like has already defeated you. That the Holy Spirit is able to continue to transform you and free you from the slavery to sin that you have experienced if you are actually in him. I just want to encourage any believer in the house today that just feels defeated. That just feels like I can't get out of this is who I am. This is just my personality. This is how I've always been. This is the way I'm always going to be. And he says, well, that might have been true of you before, but you have been made new. But you have been made new. But you have new life now in him because of the death and resurrection of our Lord. So as a believer, we should walk with the expectation of seeing ourselves progressively walking in freedom from sin over our lives. And continue to trust in him when he says that we've been made new. When he says that we now have new life and the old life that we had was crucified with him. We see our new master changing us so that we're not enslaved to the old master as we used to be. Family, let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful 
for you today. Thank you for taking our sin upon yourself. Father, we were the ones who sinned. We were the ones who turned away from you. You didn't deserve to die. You didn't deserve to have any amount of sin on you. You didn't deserve to carry our sin, to carry our guilt, to carry our shame. But God, we stand together today as your people who are grateful that when you got up, you left our old self in the grave. That you were raised to newness of life and you do the exact same thing for us. Help us to walk in the power you have given us. Help us to embrace and believe in the fact that we have been set free, that we had, a, we had a sin master, but now you are our new master. We now belong to you as citizens in your kingdom. God, would you encourage our hearts today? Would you encourage the heart of the one who's hopeless today? Of the one who's given up fighting today? Would you encourage the heart of the one who just feels like they need a break from the fighting would you encourage the heart father of the one who knows we should be taking responsibility for this fight that you have called us to but father we just want a break would you remind us that you're going to give us a break that you're going to bring ultimate relief and it'll last for a trillion times a trillion years and we'll just be getting started will you remind us of the need for us to fight here and now in this life Father, we need you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.